Hey everybody, welcome to episode 9 of the Go Get Outside podcast. That's right, we are one week away from double digits. Welcome aboard if this is your first show. Welcome back if you're a previous listener. Today on the show, we have Allison Hudson. She is a Knowles instructor and Appalachian Trail through hiker. That's right, she hiked the entire Appalachian Trail. And she is also a filmmaker. She was shooting in Nepal earlier this year when the earthquake struck. Earlier this summer, I took a three-week road trip around the western U.S. I was shooting canyoneering footage in the Pacific Northwest. I attended the International Canyoning Festival in Ure, Colorado. And I also attended the Outdoor Retailer Show in Salt Lake City, which is where I met up with Chris Kalous in the previous episode and recorded his, along with a few other episodes that you'll hear later. In those three weeks, I visited almost every state in the western U.S., and I recorded a number of podcasts with different people in those states. This episode with Allison Hudson was recorded in Green River, Wyoming at Island Park, and that was my first time to visit Wyoming. So you may be wondering why I am mentioning this. I was in Wyoming for less than 24 hours, and I had what was probably one of my favorite experiences of the whole three-week trip. So after recording the interview, I stopped by a park, pulled out this old crappy laptop I had with me, and started downloading that interview and previous interviews I had done a few days before onto some hard drives I had with me. And while I was in that park, I met some senior citizens who invited me to line dance with them in that park at 5 p.m. that day. And I thought, how often do you get offered line dancing lessons from random strangers in a park in Wyoming? And the answer was, I never have that happen. So at five, I went back to the park, met up with my new senior citizen friends, and for two hours, they taught me how to line dance, and I taught them how to do the YMCA. Enough about my trip. Let's get to why we're here. Let's get to this interview with Allison Hudson. Let's hear about Knowles, the AT, her filmmaking, and let's hear the two of us defend Facebook. Allison Hudson. I'm from Maine, but right now I think I live in Wyoming. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm a Knowles instructor and I just finished my first film. Some people probably don't know what Knowles is. Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School, is a program based in Wyoming, but they have bases all over the world and they do 30-day wilderness courses for anywhere from 14 to like 60-year-olds, but usually college-age students. So give me some examples of the types of courses they do. I know, for instance, that they do wilderness first aid because I've taken that through Knowles. That's a little separate. It's a wilderness medical institute, which is owned by Knowles now. They do first aid, like Wolfer, wilderness first responder, wilderness first aid courses. But I do 30-day backpacking courses, and I just worked a 30-day backpacking and sea kayaking course in Alaska. And they do whitewater rafting, canoeing, climbing, canyoneering all over the world. So how did you get mixed in with Knowles? I did a course with Knowles in college. I did a semester in Patagonia where we did a month of sea kayaking and then a month of backpacking mountain glacier travel and then two weeks of student expedition on our own. And I thought it was really fun and 
turns out it's a job you can have. It's not full time, but you're like, oh, I don't want to get a regular job or I'm in an office. Let me get a cool job. Right. Well, I graduated when the economy died, so getting a real job didn't seem very feasible. Oh, anyways. welcome <laughs> to the adult world. There are no jobs, and those that there that do exist don't pay well. Exactly. Yeah, it made it a lot easier to not get a real job. So, how long have you been working with Knowles? This is my second season. So two years as an instructor, and then I spent a year doing internships and working in the gear room for them. So you said season, which leads me to believe it's not January through December that you're employed by Knowles. So when do you usually work for them? What constitutes a season? Right now I've been working summer courses. So I worked last summer, one course, this summer, one course, and now I have fall work and hopefully I'll have spring work. Then it'll be more consistent throughout the year, but it's not full-time at all. But it pays big, big bank, right? Yeah, that's not true either. <laughs> so, but it's really fun. Did you? I'm assuming you had to go through some sort of training course? Yeah, they have a instructor course that's required. It's a 30-day course. They run them in different locations, and you have to take that and pass it to be an instructor, which means you have to pay to be an instructor, but they have a lot of scholarships. So what all was included in that instruction? We did 30 days in the Wind River Range, and we started in the south and went all the way to the north in a month and did leadership, navigation, how to teach, climbing section, a mountaineering section, basic backpacking, camping skills, cooking. You get assessed on everything, the way you communicate, whether you cook well, if you can use a compass properly, if you can like find a route successfully from A to B. It's like a month-long job interview. Did they ask you what kind of tree you would be if you would be a tree? I hear that's a popular interview question. No, luckily not. (laughs) It was much more, yeah, no, no tree questions. (laughs) Less uh, frivolous questions. Oh, I'm sure there are plenty of people who could talk to us right now and tell us why. Asking people what kind of tree they are is a great (laughs) interview question. Maybe Google uses that question. <laughs> I have a feeling Google doesn't, well, they probably do interview a lot of people, but I have a feeling Google just contacts people and says, hey, you're the best at this. We're going to hire you. Come work yeah. for us. And they say, okay. That'd be awesome. So when you take their training to become an instructor, are you automatically guaranteed a place as an instructor? Or is there a curriculum and you have to, say, make a certain passing grade? Or they assess you at the end and say, look, thanks for paying us to take this instruction, but we're just not going to hire you. I think most people get accepted as instructors at the end. It's rare for people not to pass. What you get offered after that is the ability to request a contract. So when I got off my course, I just submitted a request for work. And then you either get work or you don't get work, depending on how busy they are and how well you did on your course. They rank everyone. It's better to do well. You have a better chance of getting work. So it sounds like it's kind of a project-by-project thing. So even after you've gone through your 30-day interview process, you're basically kind of going through another process to get each job. Exactly. And the more you work, the more work you get. So if you aren't available to work much, you won't get much work. Having a flexible schedule is important if you want to have more field work. So you don't work year-round. So what do you do when you're not working for Knowles? It's been different each year. Video games, and, right? That's, that's all <laughs> Watch you do? Watch a lot of reality television. <laughs> no, uh, last year I worked in the summer for Knowles, and then I guided kayak tours for a few months, and then had a few months off, and then I went to Nepal to do a documentary. And this year, 
I'm not quite sure what I'm doing yet to fill in the time. But. Well, I know for one thing, just for us to set up this interview and meet in Wyoming, from the time I contacted you, what, maybe a month ago or whatever, I like this big tow truck that's driving by at a very opportune moment. I think I contact, t- contacted you about a month ago, and you've been, I think you may have still been in Nepal or on the way out of Kathmandu. You've been, what, to Alaska? And now you're in Wyoming? Am yeah. I missing anything? Is there anywhere else you've been I in the last spent, month? I spent two weeks on San Juan Island outside Seattle. Yeah, why were you there? A friend of mine's a film editor, so he edited all my footage into a film while I was actually in Alaska working a course. And so I got back, and he showed it to me, and then we finished all the like small details for a couple weeks. And then I went to Colorado, and then I came to Lander, to Wyoming. All right, and we're definitely going to get to talking about your film later. I definitely want to talk a lot about that. But let's rewind a little bit. So you started with Knowles in college. Were you into outdoor stuff before then, or was that when you were introduced to it? I grew up in Maine on an island with a national park, so did a lot of hiking as a kid, but all-day hikes, and I hated it. Like, I hated hiking a lot. And then I went to college in Wisconsin, where there were fewer mountains, and missed being outdoors a lot. So I joined the outdoor club did Knowles and that was like a big shift into oh I like doing this a lot like I should do more and travel more and then I graduated and didn't want a real job I worked at a bakery for five or six months and then hiked the Appalachian Trail oh did you do a through hike did you hike it from you hiked north north. oh south okay yeah from Georgia to Maine how long did you give yourself I gave myself as long as it would take, but I shot for five months, and it took five months. It's funny because you said you hated hiking, and then you had it taken away. So it was like an absence <laughs> makes the heart grow fonder situation. So you went I from so. I hate hiking to hiking, what, like 2,200 miles, something like that? Yeah, more or less. Yeah. I think I also wanted to see if I could do it. That's a long time to hike and sleep outdoors. And so if I could do that, then I could probably do other outdoor things. How old were you when you did the AT? Twenty. I was 23 when I started. And when I ended, 23 the whole time. <laughs> you could actually age a year in the time, so that wouldn't be surprising. So give me an overview of that experience, because I'm sure it, I'm sure what you imagined it was going to be and how you felt about it in the end were probably totally different. Yeah, so I, I actually grew up in a community with lots of thru-hikers. So I'd heard about the trail since I was really little, and I knew it would take a long time. I was excited to meet other people. Like That's one of the things a lot of people talk about, all the people they met along the way it's just this moving community decided to do it alone so it'd be easier to meet people and I thought it'd be physically challenging but I heard that the mental commitment is harder like you're committing to six months of hiking yeah and it was hard the first day I did eight miles and that was exhausting it just got easier and I met people the first night that I ended up hiking with for like 900 miles for the two guys I met and 1300 for the woman I met So I made new friends immediately, and having people to hike with made it more fun and less of a challenge mentally because you have people to talk to all day. Yeah, I know for me, if I'm hiking through some difficult terrain, if I'm not talking to anybody, I can focus on how miserable it is. But then if I'm talking to people, I can realize, like, oh, we just hiked four miles in the last couple hours, and I, I didn't even realize how rough it was because we were talking about some stupid topic unrelated to this. It goes by a lot faster. With people. And I would say we probably spent 90% of our time talking about food. <laughs> because you were probably eating terrible we were eating things. A lot. We were eating a lot that you could make on one burner, like in a jet boil or on a can stove. And so anytime we were near town, we just talked about food until we got there. And then we ate food 
whole time we were in town and then talked about food until we got to the next town. So are you carrying a lot of dehydrated meals or just a mixture of all kinds of things? Or I ate a lot of Annie's mac and cheese with pepperoni added. Is that the, is that the one night. with the rabbit on the box? Yeah. Oh, I hate that mac and cheese. Oh, it's really good. <laughs> if you put real cheese in it, it's good. Oh, so you so you brought real cheese along instead of using that powder or whatever? Yeah, in the box? my bag wasn't that heavy with the clothes and gear, so I ended up carrying heavier food. Like I realized you can bring gogurt and it will last for three or four days on the trail. So you have yogurt. Well, you have gogurt. True, it's not really yogurt. <laughs> It also makes you look like you're about five. Did you bring otter pops and a little <laughs> and a little thermos with, with Rainbow Bright on it or something? I wish. I had a jar of frosting at one point, like a can of frosting that I was eating. Was it the kind that had sprinkles in the lid? So that yeah. You have a little, was it really? Yeah, the white kind with sprinkles in it. <laughs> it's really good with cookies. So did you think about quitting at any point? I'm sure you did, right? Yeah, but it wasn't until Maine. There are parts in the middle that were just boring where I wanted to do any other physical activity, like ride a bike or run. But I still was excited to keep going. And then I got to Maine, which is all uphill, straight uphill, no switchbacks, like root and rock scrambles. And it just was devastating. <laughs> I went from going four miles an hour to two, maybe and then you still have 280 miles to go of all that. That reminds me, I don't know if, are you familiar with the West Coast Trail in Canada? It's a 48 mile trail on the West Coast of Vancouver Island. And uh, I did that about five years ago. It takes about a week. It varies in terrain from beach walking and tide table referencing so you don't get washed away. Mixed with like forest walking and mud and ladders and hand-operated cable cars and search channels and all these things. And when when you get to the trailhead, there's a whiteboard. And it was very early in the season when we did it. I think it was late May. And the season had just started. On the whiteboard, it was like number of rescues so far this season. And it was was a two-digit number. And then they give you a talk and they say, you're not going to believe me when I tell you this. But you're going to hit parts of the trail where it's going to take you an hour to hike one kilometer. Wow. And, and the lady was right. I didn't believe her. But then on, I think it was day five or six, we hit that spot. And we were trying to make it to the end because you have to catch a ferry right before you get off. So I was, I was watching my watch and clocking us for every kilometer so that we could get out in time. And it was almost an hour on the mark. Oh, my gosh. So I know what you mean where you're going along and you're moving at a clip and all of a sudden you hit something where it just like tears you down because you're moving at a quarter of the pace you were before. Yeah, you suddenly think maybe you don't know how to hike at all. Like, yeah, you're like, I've been doing this for days. I'm supposed to be good at this. Why am I suddenly sucking? Yeah, exactly. And there's a one part in Maine where you go through one mile of boulders that are house size, house and car size. You're like going up and under and through. It's exhausting. Yeah, that's how this section was where it slowed down. They have what they called blowdowns. Have you ever heard that term Those were the worst. Trees across the trail. And so it was just kilometers and kilometers of blowdowns, just falling trees and climbing over trees and having having to traverse little rivers over trees. And it took a long time. The AT is really well. They take care of it really well so they get the blowdowns quickly usually which is a good thing that'd be exhausting so are there any parts of the trail that stand out either for positive or negative reasons there's a part in virginia where you go through i think it's called the roan highlands and you go through an area with wild horses so you're like up in this big these big fields and there's wild horses and they'll come up and lick the salt off you 
which is awesome. Like from your body sweat? Of course. You're hiking. <laughs> yeah. You weren't just rubbing salt on your salt. No. I didn't feed them, but they would come really close. Are they Mustangs, or are you not sure? Or? The way they're described is semi-feral horses. Like, they get rounded up once a year, and then inoculated, and then some are brought to auction, and the rest are let go again. They know what humans are, but they're pretty wild. And they have lots of, there are lots of babies when we went through. They know that you're a good source of salt, apparently. And probably food. My guess is that most hikers feed them. Yeah, probably so. Was there a spot that you just hated and that you never want to hike again? Oh, probably. Let's see. Shenandoah is a really pretty national park, but the original Appalachian Trail through it has now been paved and turned into the Skyway Drive. And so the most beautiful part of the park is a pavement road. And the trail crosses 33 times. So you're just always by the road always crossing it. The only benefit is you can get milkshakes every day at the park stands, but that wasn't <laughs> so, that So you great. have to weigh the good with the bad there. Yeah. So do you have any goals to hike any of the other long distance trails like the Pacific Crest Trail or Continental Divide Trail? Are you going to try to be a triple crowner and do all three? I don't think I could do all three. That sounds exhausting. I think you could. <laughs> if there's one thing in the short time that I've known you that I've gotten, I've gotten the feeling is that if you want to do something, you're going to do it. And there's no question that it's going to happen. What I'm toying with now is doing the Tour Divide, the bike race that goes down the Continental Divide from Banff to New Mexico. And then like doing a paddle trip on the West Coast, like maybe the Inside Passage. And then I could do all three areas, but not have to hike them. I do a lot of hiking now for work. Oh, so now hiking sucks because it's your job. That's no, what it's still fun. Don't do what you love for a living or it'll ruin it. No, no. Hiking, <laughs> backpacking still a ton of fun, but I'm not sure. I don't want the test anymore of like, can I go for 2,300 miles? Right. You kind of proved it to yourself already. And Yeah. John Mircher would be sweet. That looks really pretty. Yeah, I have a friend who did that and uh, I'm, I'm considering that. I've been wanting to do it for a while. It looks awesome. You can do that in a month. So There's a good documentary a- on it. Yeah, yeah, mile, mile and a half. Yeah. yeah, really pretty. So watch that if you're curious about the John Muir Trail. And it's on Netflix. Oh yeah, that's true. It is, isn't it? I was one of the Kickstarter backers for it, so that's how I wow. knew about it. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm just a wonderful person. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll transition now into how I know you, which is we both attended the Banff Adventure Filmmakers Workshop last November during the festival. And you talked about this documentary you wanted to make that sounded really ambitious. And here we are, not even a year later, and it's done. And it's going to be in the main film festival. Anywhere else that it's been accepted yet? Just the main outdoor film festival. Okay, so main outdoor film, film festival. But it's under consideration at eight other festivals, I think. When do you think you'll hear back from those? Anywhere from a couple months to six months from so, now. So probably by the time this goes live, you'll have answers from everybody, and then I can let people know at the end of the show where they can see it. Yeah, hopefully more than just in Maine. So tell me about this documentary. So I went to Nepal in 2011, worked there for five months, and got to meet a ton of people who work on Everest, and just was really interested in their stories. And so a few years later, after I'd been to documentary school and gotten more time to think about the idea... I started a Kickstarter to fund a documentary about some of the guys that work on Everest. People know them more commonly as Sherpas, but not everyone who works there is a Sherpa. And then the year I started the Kickstarter was also the year that there were 16 deaths in one avalanche on Everest. So it made having those stories known feel a little bit more timely. Like It's really easy for people to think of Sherpa and just picture 
everybody looking the same and like being the same and having the same job and there's so many more layers to it than that and so my hope was to create a film that would give more identity to people from that community and like make them more unique as individuals rather than just a clump so people might care more about when 16 people die on Everest right because it's easy to just take a group of people and think of them as like a separate unit from yourself and then maybe if you get to know them, you start to think of them as people instead of, oh, the guys that carry all the packs, put up all the rope. Exactly. It's easier to think of people as expendable if you don't know them. And if a Western person dies on Everest, their name is almost always really widely known in the news. And it's rarely more than Sherpas included when someone else dies on Everest. So it's like really unequal. And from everything I've ever heard, they work super hard. Yes, they work really hard and often for very little pay, depending. There's like such a range. Like they're icefall doctors that set the ladders through the icefall at the base. And then there are also like 40 or 50 IFMGA certified guides in Nepal who are mostly Sherpa. And so they have like the highest certification in the world and they're also working on the mountain. So the level of pay is very different between the, like along the spectrum. So when you originally went to Nepal in, in 2011 and started meeting a bunch of people there, what had brought you there in the first place? Right. So I went to Nepal the first time to work for an outdoor school started by a Nepali Knowles instructor. And he taught whitewater rescue technician courses and was also teaching wilderness first aid. So I helped him teach the first wilderness first responder in Nepal to a bunch of local guides. There's no certification necessary in that country to be a guide. And tourism is one of the biggest industries, so there's a big gap in what people are trained to fix if there are injuries. What's the name of your documentary? What's the running time? Let's let's get all the uh, let's get all the specs out the way. Right. So the film is called Close to the Edge: Life in the Kumbu, and it's 11 minutes. That's it. That's, that's <laughs> Those thing. are all the specs. Yeah, it's mostly. It's in color, right? <laughs> it's in color. <laughs> it includes some of the experiences of two icefall doctors and then one IFMGA guide how they think about the mountain and the work they do there and whether they want to go back, considering the dangers each year. So what's the format of it? Is it largely composed of interviews with the subjects or is it... So I wanted to keep it, I wanted to keep Western voice out of it as much as possible. I feel like oftentimes films like that are done with a Western narrator and I wanted to let people speak for themselves. So it's all interview. Some of it is in Nepali and has subtitles and then there's like one part where I talk at the end but it's almost entirely just the guys speaking for themselves and you you funded it through Kickstarter right I did I did a 28 day Kickstarter and exceeded the goal by a little bit and what what did you end up raising in the end I think about $9,200 and Kickstarter takes a part of that right they do. They take 10%. Amazon takes like 6 to 4%, and Kickstarter takes about 5 so you have to build it into your budget. What did you use those funds for? I used the funds for gear. Like I needed some audio equipment. I got a nicer camera and uh, flights. It's pretty expensive to get to Nepal. Also, like submitting to festivals, that adds up really quickly. Yeah. I'd say those were the biggest expenses, and then in-country expenses like traveling and um, just living there. Did you find that even after raising that money, you had to take money out of your own pocket, that there were costs you didn't foresee or anything like that? The budget could have been bigger, and then I could have paid myself, which in the future would be a goal of mine. I also <laughs> then could have paid my editor, 
instead of him doing it for free, which is incredibly generous. So I'd say in the end, I probably used all of the money for film-specific things, and then living expenses were out of my own pocket. Were you the entire crew? Was it just you, or did you have someone there helping you, people helping run camera, run sound? My goal is to do it all alone, but then in January, I was at the Kumbu Climbing Center, which is a school. It's run in this village of Forze in the Kumbu for guides and climbers from Nepal to learn more skills and there's another filmmaker there so the two of us interviewed the icefall doctors together and then i used some of he let me use some of his footage so aside from the footage i borrowed of his everything is mine all the sound and all the filming the b-roll having done that also myself before where you're running camera and sound and having to talk to people would you do that again i would not do that again (laughs) I like that I learned a lot from juggling it all and making a ton of mistakes and like getting to own everything. Like everything is my decision, like good or bad. So that was kind of fun. But I think in the future, it would be much better to have someone help. (laughs) Definitely a sound person. Yeah, I find the tricky thing is... You think like, oh, it's easy. I know how to do this. I know how to do this. But then you, your attention is diverted in so many directions at once that then you realize like, oh, I'm, I'm not actually paying attention to what this person is saying because I'm worried about what the camera's doing and if the sound levels are okay. That's why it's great to have other people who can take care of those things. Definitely. I spent, I think I have almost an hour of a ceremony where I just got distracted by the sound and so the video is nothing. Like instead of moving around to shoot different components of it, I just have like one shot with the sound coming in. I could have gotten a lot more if there's a second person. So how long were you there shooting? I was there from January until the end of April. I was supposed to stay through May, but then there was an earthquake. (laughs) Right, which I figured this was going to come up at some point. Let's talk about that. So you were there for the huge earthquake. I was. So in early April, I went up to the Everest area with all my stuff and hiked into base camp. Originally, I was going to stay at base camp for 10 days with a friend who's in charge of an expedition. He's a Sirdar. Government changed the policy, and no one was allowed to stay unless they were on a permit to climb the mountain, which is really expensive. So I stayed in the little village of Gorikshep and hiked back and forth to base camp for four days to get footage. You can't actually film in base camp without a permit, but I looked like a tourist, so that was fine. I got everything I needed and hiked down... And the day I flew from Luklo back to Kathmandu, I got in at like 8 and then hung out in my apartment. I should have put all my footage on my hard drive, but I didn't because I was being lazy. And then at noon there was an earthquake. The floor started moving and the whole building started shaking. So I I was on the third floor, so too high to like get to the bottom before it was obvious that this was pretty serious. So yeah, I hung out in the doorway for however long the earthquake was. It was everything was moving, like not just side to side, but up and down. Like it was like being on a subway car in the middle part where the doors are. And my bikes blew over, and the plaster started coming off the wall, and the windows blew open, and my door blew open. And it was just super loud and really hot. The building got really warm. Like all the inside was heating up from the vibration, like the uh, rebar, and then it stopped. <laughs> it trashed Kathmandu, right? And also led to an avalanche into base camp. So my neighborhood, the Bodenath area where I was staying with a friend, was not damaged as heavily as other parts of the city. So at first it was unclear 
how big the quake had been and how much destruction there was. But as the day went on, like I ended up with some people who had been in the old part of the city and that literally just dropped to the ground. Like the old buildings were instantly brick and wood piles. And so that was clear, like this is huge. This is a problem. And then I found out there are 200 people. The first report were there are 200 people missing on Everest. Like I have the newspaper article from the next day, and that's all they knew. 200 people missing. There's an avalanche there. And then over time it became clear like those people were on the mountain and they actually were safe and they picked them all off by helicopter. But there did end up being an avalanche that went through base camp and did it kill 16 people or it something like six. that? It killed six. So wait, six. no, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's totally wrong. It killed five Western people and 13 Sherpa, I think. I still don't know who those people are. Like, I could never find a list. The destruction in other villages, like, entire villages were destroyed. Um, the village of Langtang was buried from an avalanche, like, 80 meters high, maybe? And 300 people dead, like, immediately. So the destruction outside of Everest was bigger, even though people know about Everest and were more right. focused on that at first. Yeah, I think there were all kinds of reports where they were talking to people who were stranded on the mountain. And then they basically ended the season, right? Did, has, did anyone summit after that? Do you know? I don't know. I think they closed the season, ended the season, because the Kumbu was so destroyed. Like, entire villages that the Sherpa come from were, like, knocked out. I don't think anyone summited, and the Chinese also closed the northern side. Like, a bunch of people I know who worked on the north because it was considered safer this year volunteered to stay and keep working, and the Chinese government was like, no way, like, it's done, go home, like, the season's over. The earthquake cut your trip short, essentially. Did you leave immediately afterwards, or what was what was your mindset after everything happened? I don't think I really knew what had happened until weeks later, just... There wasn't, it was hard to get internet in the city after that, and like the phones kept breaking. Every time there was an aftershock, which continued for hours, everyone would suddenly use the phones to call and check on people, and so you couldn't call anyone. Um, And a friend of mine from Abu Dhabi got me a ticket out of the country because I didn't know where to stay and like what to do and whether to stay. It was clear that people would need food and water and shelter immediately and like having an extra person for my friend to take care of seemed like not a good option. Right, because since you were there, it's not like you could enter and be knowledgeable of what the situation is and then provide assistance because you essentially were in the same, to a certain degree, in the in the same predicament as the people who live there at that point, right? Yeah. Our apartment didn't seem safe. I went back four hours later to get all of my gear and sleeping bags and stuff to stay warm with. And at that point, it wasn't clear if the building was going to fall down. And so, yeah, like one more person in the same predicament as everyone else just didn't seem like a good option. It ended up being that my friend immediately with a friend of his in Iceland started a fundraising mission rescue and like they just won an award at the OR for all the efforts they did. So if I'd stayed, I could have helped with that. But there's too many decisions in such a short amount of time with no information. And so you said you flew to Abu Dhabi? Right. So I flew to Abu Dhabi and stayed with a friend there for five or six days. I just wanted to get out of the country and then I could decide to go back or go to the States. And at that point, it just seemed like going back wasn't a really good option. 
So I went back to the States. And so did you go back to Maine? Did you go to Wyoming? Where'd you go after you got back? Oh yeah. So I flew to Maine, just good. Turns out my parents were very worried about <laughs> I me. I wonder why. <laughs> and I stayed there for three weeks, just like mostly on Facebook, trying to figure out like finding out if people were alive that I knew and like what was damaged and what was happening. It took so long for information to get out. So just like three weeks sort of hanging out and calming down maybe. Yeah, this this was my experience with it. I saw you post something on Facebook about how you were on your way to base camp. And then I left for a few days with a friend. I think we went to Arizona to do some canyoneering in the area. And so we were out of contact for a few days. And as we were driving back, he was talking to his fiance on the speakerphone in his truck. And she said, oh, did you guys hear? And we were like, hear what? And she said, there was a huge earthquake and an avalanche on Everest. And what she said at the time, because based on what the news was, it killed everyone in base camp. Oh, my God. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, I know someone (laughs) who either was or is in base camp. So the whole drive back, I'm like, oh, crap. I hope she wasn't there. (laughs) And so when I finally got home. I got on the Facebook and found your page and I saw that you were you were not in the area and I was relieved. That was a lot of people's experience. Luckily I was able to get to my brother on the phone early, like early morning in the States and he was able to put something on Facebook which like it's easy to make fun of Facebook, but in an emergency, incredibly useful. Yeah, I mean, people can say whatever they want about Facebook, and sure, there are plenty of stupid things on Facebook and annoying things, but Facebook has been helpful in this situation, other communication situations. I've yeah. got work through Facebook. It's, it's very, like very useful. You reach a huge audience all at once, so I was able to let people know before they even knew there was an earthquake, which was really useful. You got back, and then you decided, oh, I guess I'll finish the movie with what I've got. Mm-hmm. You've made an eleven-minute piece. How long was? How long did it take to edit? So what happened was, I got, I took my hard drive out of the apartment when the initial earthquake happened when I left, but I didn't take my SD card with everything from Everest. So I had none of my footage from base camp, and my friend found it in the apartment and sent it to me, and I didn't look at any of it. It just got sent to Seattle, and my friend Jared just took it all apart and edited everything and turned it into an 11 minute piece which is about half what I had was aiming for but that sounds pretty consistent for people with their first film like it ends up being shorter than they think it will be yeah I think the opposite happens too which is people make it even or as the length they thought or even longer and then someone else comes along and says hey this is way too long having it be half the length that you thought it would be probably means it's stronger having someone else edit it was huge like if I'd done it myself it would have been longer and probably really bad and probably have some precious moments that, that you didn't need yeah so i credit jared my editor with making it the quality that it is like he has a good eye for pieces to add and keeping it short and more succinct was really good did the earthquake or anything like that end up having a part in the movie does that come into play at all i didn't include anything about it in the film because i thought what i already had was important enough and like the earthquake affected people on Everest, but I think the effect on people in other locations was bigger, so I didn't want to take away from that. And you didn't want to change the focus. And I also had no footage of the earthquake. Like, I panicked. There's, I didn't get anything of the <laughs> earthquake at all. Like, I just didn't want to die. I, I guess that's an understandable <laughs> reaction. I think the only thing I wish I'd included, and I could still add, would be like a slide at the end to say the people in it survived. Like, the three people I interviewed didn't die in the 
avalanche, which is which is good, good. news. Yeah. yeah, you have never climbed Everest, right? No, and I do don't. Do you have any desire? To. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> More so, my desire not to do it is even stronger now than before I went. So it has strengthened your resolve to not climb the tallest peak in the world yeah there are other mountains there i'd go back and climb that are beautiful and like use a little bit more of the climber skill and they're less of a guided effort so some of the more technical routes yeah you still have a guide and they still do a ton of work but you get to do more yourself too so what's next you finished your film you're submitting it to festivals you're going back to work you're going to start on something else you may you don't know are you making plans what's going on i've got more work for Knowles, which is great more backpacking I'm doing some freelance writing about backpacking and waiting to hear about the film and got a couple ideas I'm toying with for fun projects, but I'd rather keep them fun and not have them be jobs at this point. But I need some work. i got to find more stuff to do. So I guess now is probably a good time to wrap it up and let you go look for work. So if people want to find out more about your film or about you, where should they go? Is there a website for the film? Is there a personal website for you? I have a personal website, and it's just my name. It's allisonfhudson.com. Or you could Google the film, and that'll show up there as well. And let's give the name of it once again. Right, so the film is Close to the Edge, Life in the Kumbu. And then I'll update this and let people know where they can see it. Awesome. Once uh, once you know where people can see it. Yeah, hopefully more places. All right. Well, thanks for meeting me in this park in Wyoming. Very nice park. Yeah, it's not bad. Too bad we can't get across the way to uh, to the island park because for some reason it's closed on Sundays. True. But thanks for meeting me here and uh, go find some work. All right, guys, it's time to wrap up the show. Make sure to stop by the website, gogetoutside.com. Check out the show notes where you can get links to Allison's website. You can see her work. You can find out where else you can see Close to the Edge, Life in the Kumbu. You can keep up with its progress and find places where you can see it there at her website. I also put a link to the Mile, Mile and a Half documentary that we mentioned. It is a good John Muir Trail documentary. You should check it out. So while you're playing around on the internet, if you decide you want to contact us here at the show, you may do that with your email device. Send a message to go at butcherbirdstudios.com. Or you can use a telephone machine and you can call 818-925-0106. You can leave us a message up to three minutes there on Google Voice. Talk about whatever you want. If we like it, we'll put it on the show. While you're messing with your phone, while you're messing with your internet gadget, stop by iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get this show. Subscribe. If you're not subscribed, why not? Get to it. Subscribe. And hey, rate the show. Review the show. A bunch of you have done that. I love all of you. I want to love more of you. If you haven't done it, feel my love. Rate, review the show. Next week, Scott Merrill, a buddy of mine, lives down here in Southern California He is a daddy and a canyoneer. Come back and hear all about approaching 50 and rediscovering the outdoors. Next week, Scott Merrill. See you then.